Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking with creative people, but it's been a while. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. I'm not dead. I did record a couple of interviews that have to tie in with future things, so I'm holding them and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, today I'm talking to my friend, author Leslie Smith, about his novel Sally Field Can Play the Transsexual, which I've read and it's excellent and it's really an interesting conversation. But before then, um, I want to encourage you to go to DennisAnyone.net. Uh, you can do fun stuff there, like subscribe to my newsletter. You can kick in a little to my tip jar. And I would like to thank Leslie Van for her generous donation, as well as Doug Winstock. Thank you for kicking in. It helps me keep the podcast free and pay for things like web bandwidth things and all of it. And um, it's cool. All right. I would also love it if you wanted to review the podcast on iTunes or share an interview on Facebook, whatever, anything. I love it. I'm also uh, Dennis Anyone on Facebook. You could you could like my page. All right. That's about enough of that stuff. Let's get to the interview. Here is my friend Leslie L. Smith, uh, author of the book, Sally Field Can Play the Transsexual. All right. I know it's been a while since I've done a podcast. I feel bad about that. But I'm here with Leslie Smith. He's an author and he's a friend of mine. His book is Sally Field Can Play the Transsexual or I Was Cursed by Polly Holiday. And I, we got to get to the bottom of that title. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Leslie Smith. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've written this book. Yes. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. It's very good. <laughs> I gave you a blurb and I... I got to gush, and it wasn't even like I was happy to gush. Believe me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You gave me a great blur. But Thank you. I was very pleased. Um, actually, it's been really great. You know, if I can get people to sit down and read it, uh, it seems like the feedback is generally very good. But uh, we seem to be moving away from that reading culture at a people, rapid pace. I know people don't read, although um, there is a lit walk. In North Hollywood tomorrow night, where people are walking around talking about lit things. Really? Yeah, I might go to it. I don't know yet. I'm supposed to. I'll give do you something copies else. of the book. Go and just throw them out, <laughs> sprinkle them around. Yes. What's been um, any surprising reactions that you've gotten from people, or people online, or online reviewers, or friends and family? Well, what what's really interesting was the one of the first reviews of the book on Amazon was a man who essentially called the book an insult to Sally Field. Um, and it, it was very obvious that he had not read the book, um, but he felt that using her in this context was somehow bes- besmirching her. And the, the really sort of incredible outpouring of people who had never read the book or didn't read the book but who lambasted this man for judging a book by its cover, quite literally... Um, so lots of people was, defended you against the besmirching accusation. They, they defended the book. They defended the process. Where did this all happen? On Facebook? It was on Amazon, actually. On Amazon. And then, oddly enough, a few months later, he went back in and changed his review. Uh, to He gave it five stars, and, and the review now simply reads, I have changed my opinion of this book. All right, boom, we gave it five stars. There yeah. you go. So tell us how the Sally Field, I know because I've read the book, but tell the listeners why you call the book Sally Field Can Play the Transsexual. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to give away too much. This has always been a hard question to answer because the, um, the reveal of the title is a, a reveal of the story itself. And um, it really does um, have the potential to be a... Uh, a spoiler if um, not talked about correctly. Uh, but essentially the main character is a, slightly obsessed with Sally Field. In fact, he um, is a hustler in New York, but he has trouble with his memory. And when he plays, um, he has this trick where what he does is he casts people around him as actors and makes movies of his life so that he can play them back after and and have some memory of what had gone on in his day-to-day life. And Sally Field figures into these... And Sally Field figures into these things mostly because he always forgets to cast himself. And okay. when he plays the films back, Sally Field is playing him. All right. Well, you could you could do a lot worse. <laughs> you could. And what about the subtitle? Um, or I was 
cursed by Polly Holiday. Well, um, so... Because I can't imagine anyone being cursed by Polly Holiday. I mean, <laughs> she was Flo. Well, the, the character um, that he is cursed by, quote-unquote, um, does it very uh, innocuously. She doesn't... She's trying to be uh, a friend to him, right. but sort of... It lays out this uh, personal experience that then uh, David winds up experiencing in his own life. Right. All right. So David is your protagonist. Yes. Now, have you done that yourself? Sort of imagined movies of your life? Is that something that that you thought that you've that you've experienced? <laughs> you know, I, I grew up in Arkansas in um, in a very isolated world. Um, I was a kid who loved to read, who loved to learn, and who really didn't seem to think that the the very conservative religious right that surrounded me was taking in everything there was to, to see about the world. And, so that's an understatement. <laughs> um, and I saw this from a very young age. And so what I did was I really immersed myself in the culture of film um, and quite... Uh, Luckily, uh, and I think partially because of my uh, involvement and, and hunger to help, uh, my parents wound up opening a video store in a small Arkansas That's town. That's amazing. I was going to ask you if you watched on video, but you yeah. owned the video store. Yes. Did you work so there? I worked there. I worked there. I think working day. at a video store is a neat. I, I, do, I worked in one briefly. Yeah. And I like, I thought, oh, you so, take home movies, it's everything. Well, it's not just that, but because it was such a small town and because people would sort of come in in the morning and in the evening, I would sit there all day and just watch movies. And, and over the summer, over several summers, when I was in junior high and high school, I worked full time. Right. Because uh, my dad had another job and my mom was a school teacher. And so we all sort of shared that burden. But it was very easy for me to... Burden schmerden. That's a fun <laughs> gig. Well... Well, I, I'm, more, I'm romanticizing yeah. no, it, video no, stories. No, it was. As, I think as a as a as a, a kid in junior high and and the early years of high school, it was it was a really great gig. What movies take you back to that video store? Um, Pretty in Pink, of course. Um, Salvador, okay, with uh, uh, James Jay Woods. Woods. Um, the um, uh, oh God! I'm seeing all these uh, uh, posters, these poster images, but I can't right. remember the names. And you would get um, posters too. Did you ever take them home yeah, or like stand ups? Oh yeah, absolutely. My room uh, was covered in in movie posters. Um, what was your proud one? Uh, uh, Pretty in Pink. Okay. Um, I also love. Holds up really well, by the way. Yeah. Uh, there was. Um, all the John Hughes movies and, and Say Anything, Cameron Crowe. Um, uh, I was really into that, you know, that whole 80s teen comedy thing. Like, I loved all of it. Um, there was this one really great movie with John Cryer and Demi Moore that I... I oh, know I know it, what it is. The, is it One Crazy Summer? No, he played the photographer. Um, and, and she um, sang a... Was she a singer? Yeah, she, she sang My Funny Valentine? Yeah, exactly. I feel like... I can't remember what it was called. No, I, I remember because I, I bought the soundtrack and I would listen to that My Funny Valentine song forever and ever. Yeah. Oh, shit. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll look it up. It was, like, it feels like it was three words. It's it's really disconcerting to know. It wasn't many, One Crazy yeah, Summer. No, it wasn't One Crazy Summer. I'll, I'm going to, I cannot go look now. I guess I could. On my computer, because it'll sure. drive people crazy. I will, I will mention it at the end tag, so you have to stay along for that. So that this It'll is one of those. Me. This is anyway. one of these things where I realized how far I've come in my life and how much I've experienced. Because I that movie was one that I saw with great regularity in that video store. I would watch it over and over again, um, and now you know. 25 years later, I can't even remember the title. <laughs> That's all right. Stuff happens. It happens. Yeah. Were people in your town good rewinders, or would they not rewind? Um, no, they were They were good. Okay, um, good. They were also 
you know, my dad was also kind of a stickler. So, if, yeah. you, you know, if you didn't rewind, you paid the fee the next time you came in or you weren't allowed to take anything out. Bam. And um, we were in a small town and we were the only game in yeah. in Gurdon, Arkansas. If you didn't rent from us, you had to drive 30 miles to the town where I grew up. I Were new releases and old releases the same price? No, different prices. I'm, pr- I'm saying $3 for a new release. Uh, I think it was two fifty two, two and then it went up to two fifty um and it was a dollar for um for the older ones yeah and then one of the oh, one of the few moments that my crazy conservative dad has ever really expressed pride in me was after the store had been open kind of a year, I went through everything that had duplicates that wasn't renting on a regular basis sure. and I put used copies up for sale. And I didn't ask him to do it. I didn't do anything. I just did it. And suddenly the revenue kind of jumped a lot. And right. that was that was like one of the few moments of growing up where I, I remember my dad sort of expressing real pride in Aww. his gay son. That's <laughs> so poignant. Yeah. Wow. Now, you went and made a film called David Searching with Anthony Rapp, which is how I met you throughout Fest when you were screening it. Yes. It's a terrific movie. With Thank Cameron you. Mannheim and a masturbation scene that I recall. Yes. And a, and, a, and a nice song by Tom McCormick called Missing. Yes. And a sweet story. And, and Were I, they proud of you for making a movie? I, my mom was torn and my dad was embarrassed. Um, in fact, the, the college in my hometown invited me to come uh, do a, a student body screening. And right. My dad really didn't want. He tried to, uh, everything he could to interrupt it. Um, and make sure that it didn't happen. God damn um, it. But my mom, on the other hand, was really, really supportive um, in weird, weird ways. Not um, She was less supportive publicly, but very supportive privately. And she insisted on watching the movie with me. Um, on At home or in a, at, a screening? At, at home. Uh, it was one of those uh, VHS trailers where the, the counter was running across from the, um, right. the image cutting. Sure. Like, um, and um, I remember that masturbation scene. Um, my mom, uh, you know, there's uh, this sequence where... Uh, Aunt, I don't know why I remember it. I just he, re- It's very, like, it's not glamorous at all. It's very, like... Well, one utilitarian. Of the most, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life, uh, I directed Anthony to actually spit. And Anthony Rapp, yes. Yeah, use spit as lubrication for right. the masturbation. So I'm sitting next to my mom, and these, these, the scene, there's a couple of them. These scenes are happening. And she turns to me with, in complete earnest and says, okay, I know what he's doing. But what does he keep taking out of his mouth? <laughs> the shame. Wow. But you know, it's a very substantial question. I had, I had to explain and the need said, for lubrication yeah, to my mother. She, you know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> did she give you a talk about sex when you were growing up? Um, no, my dad did. Okay. Uh, but they mostly left it... You know, I grew up in a town with two colleges. One was a Baptist college, one was a state college, and they... Together, they produced more public school teachers than I think any other place in the state. And okay. as a result, my my school was pretty progressive, and and there was a pretty aggressive sex ed uh, role in the school. That's and, good, and that's where where I really remember it. Um, you know, the the I think it was the fifth grade where we had like. A month where we stepped out of our one of our normal classes and we went in and the the coach was of the um, the junior high uh, football team was responsible for showing us films and taking us through different things and yeah so there you go now yeah. you went to New- when did you move to New York I moved to New York in 1991 um, I was twenty uh, two. What was that like? What do you remember about being the new guy in New York? Well, I I got really lucky because I had I was in school for theater and I ran across this um, ad for uh, interns through the Alliance for Resident Theaters or Art New York, which okay. is the coalition of off Broadway theaters. So I applied to that. I came to New York to interview and I got placed with the Young Playwrights Festival. Oh wow. That and so when I arrived in New York, I had a job. 
That's right. so nice. You had a cool job. Yeah. It was now, really cool. Who do you remember from that? Like, do you remember meeting playwrights and actors and being around all these New York muckety mucks? The, I, less the less the playwrights and more the directors. You know, that year it was uh, Lisa Peterson, uh, Michael Mayer, uh, Mark Brokaw, and Gloria Munzio. Who, I've heard of Mayer. He yeah. he did, I think, Spring Awakening and yeah. other big things. And he made a movie too. I remember. Yeah, he did the um, Home at the End of the World. Yes, movie. and um, the Sliding Glass of, Door, Colin Farrell yeah. movie. Yeah. Right, and, um, based on the Michael Cunningham novel, yes, which is one of my favorites, and um, one of the things that sort of really opened up what the the world of storytelling could be for me. Right. Um, until that, I hadn't really come across uh, gay stories that really moved me uh-huh. the way that one did. Now you, you're back in LA, you, but you talked about how New York has lost all the n- cool stuff that you loved about it, or a lot of it. Lately, in the past, uh, I would say five to uh, seven years, uh, New York is, I think it's all still there. It's just been moved out to the outer boroughs, right? And and because I've been away for a little while, I I don't know where to find it. Yeah, it's still there. It's still there, but it's... But Manhattan is like rich, super rich, and it's well, hard for... not only is it super rich, but it's very homogenized, right? Because you, in Times Square, you have an Olive Garden and a Red Lobster and all the things that, um, you know, you you would have never thought about being a part of that world. Right. Um, but there they are, front and center, and, um, and people go. Yeah. And now with Broadway being closed down, there's, uh, especially in the theater district, it feels so different because... Um, Everything used to be kind of theater height, and now everything's built up really tall. So uh, even in the middle of the day, Times Square is darker than it used to be. And and they've closed down Broadway, so there's this sea of people. So whenever you turn into Times Square, it's like sort of like entering Disneyland. Where you or see that Smash. Or I, <laughs> I saw them shooting a scene of Smash with um, the blonde, Ivy. Megan Hilty shooting yeah. a, scene, a coffee scene at those little red yeah. tables. I just walked right into Smash. Um, it's very weird that they still shoot stuff there, but I guess most of it's done at like four in the morning or something. Because I sort of like LA because or New York that way because they don't. If they worried about every person that happened to walk by that might be in the shot, you know what I mean? Like it, mm-hmm. it wouldn't. I, th- I feel like they're just kind of like mm-hmm. we're shooting. Yeah, maybe sometimes yeah, if you're talking, what... maybe we'll have you sign a release. Yeah. But otherwise, good luck. It does depend on on the production and and the sort of. Uh, cojones of the producers right on but um, but yeah the other really frustrating thing about how New York has changed is um, it used to be that you could take a walk and and in the course of taking that walk you would run into uh, any number of friends who were doing cool things or or whatever now most of those friends most of that world has been pushed out to the you know the outer uh, outskirts of Brooklyn or Queens or way up they pulled a Samantha, so. or no? They pulled a Miranda from yeah, Sex and yeah, the City. Exactly. So, so what happens is you have to like LA now make a date and yeah. like a plan to get together. And um, Claudia Shear had this really great line in her one woman show, uh, "Blown Sideways Through Life." I remember that show. It was uh, well, I, um, either Mark Brokaw or Lisa Peterson directed it. I can't remember which, <laughs> but. Um, the uh, the line was that New York is the only place in the world where you can stop for a donut and end up in a foreign country. And I sort of always loved how that really uh, encapsulated what could happen just walking out your front door and taking a walk in the city and how running into people who were coming from things could really alter your trajectory. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's just a function of age. I don't think it's just because no. you're in your whatever you are in. But, you know, uh, I think it's the city's changed, probably. But, yeah, exactly. Now, coming back to L.A., do you think it's changed a lot? No, actually, it's very. it's been very interesting how comforting it's been to sort of see that a lot of the, um, the sort of institutions are exactly what yeah. they were, you know, and... The good earth on uh, in Studio City closed. Yes, that was a blow. Yes, but uh, what is it? Bookstar is still there. Bookstar is holding on. Different and, lights gone, but what yeah. gay bookstore isn't? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, LA. It's gotten there's there's not a lot of lost things, but there are more cool things that have come up. North Hollywood's gotten really cool. My hood. Um, 
Well, but like Warner Brothers is Warner Brothers, yeah. and it's exactly where it was. Whereas in New York, Time Warner has moved probably four times in the twenty-five years that I've been associated with it. Right. That that's right. a great parallel. You know. So, um, so I don't know. I I. I I was really surprised that when I arrived at how comforting and grounding just the 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 stagnancy of the uh, geography was for me. Nice. <laughs> um, let's get back to the book. What was the beginning? Because you've been working on it a long time. What was the beginning yeah. impulse, and when would you have started it? I started actually when I lived here the first time in uh, the late nineties, um, and. It started with um, with the list. I sort of got this uh, idea about a character who would make these random and funny lists. I love the list. They and open almost every chapter or every chapter? They open every chapter. Yeah. They're really fun. Let me see if I can find one. And, um, and I started sort of working off of that. And, and the whole idea was that the within the list itself, it could be very... Um, sort of pulling at the heartstrings or it could be very funny and and that you could in one line to the next you know completely change the yes. tone of, of of a particular question or a particular thought here's a great example i just opened up to this chapter 10 a partial list of what to say oh well is this a spoiler when standing at my Go, i think okay. that's okay yeah a partial list of what to say when standing by my mother's deathbed number one how's it going Number two, oh, my bad, I didn't recognize you. Oh, hey, Dad, I didn't recognize you. I thought it said my bad. I'm really <laughs> blind. I'm glad I'm selling this. Number three, by the way, I brought a ghost with me. He can keep mom company when she crosses over. That's an interesting little tease. Uh, number four, hey, sis, I thought you'd be pregnant by now. Hilarious. And five, this is my favorite one. What happens if I pull on this too? But yeah, the lists are super fun, and they yeah. do have that emotional. Uh, it can go from frivolous to really profound, and really revealing, and brutally honest. Um, so it started his list. So what was also sort of going on at this time um, was that this this sort of subculture of gay barebacking was emerging. And when you were starting to write yeah. um, the book, yeah, the, the think about it um, in the late the late nineties when you know treatment was was proving to be viable. Um, what I started to see was that men who had been uh, incredibly safe and negative for years were suddenly starting to zero convert and um, and more and more in sort of sexual situations, uh, people were encouraging or asking for risk taking that was um, until that point in my life really unheard of. Right. Um, you wouldn't have seen that before. Yeah. Um, and I was. I'd been positive. I tested positive um, when I was 19. I'm pr based on conversations with some doctors, I'm pretty sure I, I zero converted at 16, but there's no way to know. Um, and what what always struck me was that as soon as I got out of Arkansas and came to the the sort of urban areas of the world, was that people were really frank about the importance of safe sex and and why it had to happen and it was really, really hard for me to wrap my brain around this almost what seemed to me to be an almost instant switch in our culture, where as soon as things stopped being deadly, the risks became acceptable. Right. Um, and and over time, you know, being attracted to that and and wanting that, and you know, having a whole subculture of men who push for that, um, I was engaging in these circles that were, were doing these things, but also really not okay with it on some real level. You weren't okay with it. I wasn't okay level. with it. It was very um, conflicting. It was very conflicting. And um, so in these lists, from that sort of came out this idea of, of a hustler who had been safe for a long time, who had lost a friend to AIDS. Your hero, David. My hero, David. What is it about the name David? David searching in this <laughs> movie. Is there a thing to it? There is a thing to it. Okay. Um, what I always tell people is that the character in David searching um, is... When I got to New York, I sort of felt like people expected to me to be this version of myself that I knew I could never live up to. And David was kind of... Um, an exploration of who that guy might be. 
Um, and with this book, what I came to realize uh, as I started writing was that this was also a similar version, an alternative Leslie, mm-hmm. right? If if uh, a series of choices had happened different for me, differently for me when I was young, um, this very well could have been my path. Right. Um, it was not. Um, but it's been very interesting how much people um, want to make me both characters. Um, I, I got it when David Searching came out, and I get it. Uh, like, even the the Bay Area Reporter review of Sally says it's more a memoir than a novel. How would they know and that, though? That's so I, presumptuous. Exa- exactly. How um, do they know that? Maybe it just means that it felt I, I, real. I, I mean, personally, I'm taking it to, to be... Uh, um, a compliment to the the first person narrative, which yeah, is, that it just feels like um, the real deal, yeah, um, and which is something not done much anymore. But if you go back and read, you know, the Salinger stuff, like yeah. the the criticism of Catcher in the Rye had a lot of the same kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I'm not certainly not comparing myself to that, but I do think that there is an instinct when you truly lose yourself in a first person narrative to assign that narrative to the writer. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So getting back to what we were talking about, you were noticing this change in sexual behavior and you had this conflict about it within yourself. And so I thought I was going to write to try to resolve it. And, and what really happened is I wrote to be stuck in it. (laughs) I got stuck in it for many, many years. And what I came to finally realize was that, what I was waiting for was for the world to sort of give me an answer to the conundrum, right? Oh, should I be okay doing this? Um, not should I be okay doing this, but there is a way for me to do this without really being um, negligent or or gross or worse, even um, predatory, mm-hmm. um, which is, is something that happens a lot, I think, in our community and we don't really talk about it. Um, I, it was really important for me that this character of David be someone who who sort of straddled all those lines and didn't didn't really become any of those things. What I like about it is that you don't take one sort of side to this issue and hammer it home. You wrestle with all of it, and it's very honest in that way. And I think that's what's what's really great about the book is how how complicated and it, it'll it'll make one point on the. On one paragraph, and then you'll realize that the the character is sort of conflicted about it. Like it, it just it wrestles with all this stuff, but it doesn't tell you what to think about any of it. And it's it's not preachy. And we have to be honest about what people are into. If if yeah. somebody if it turns somebody if this idea turns somebody on, telling them they're bad for that isn't going to make it not turn them on. Right. You got to be honest about it, and then decide what, how to. Well, what, one of the you things know, that you want to behave. One how, of the things that I'm very aware of because of the way that I grew up is judgment breeds uh, silence, not change. Okay, gay people right? should understand that and, more than anybody. Yeah, and um, and what brings brings about change is is real discussion. And one of the things that's been very frustrating for me over the past few years is that. It, I can really. So I, I write about this in one of my blogs a little bit about the cost of losing AIDS education, um, how difficult it is now to really explain to someone the myriad of ways they have to protect themselves and um, the different ways that, as someone who has HIV, I can keep from spreading it. And uh, for someone else who perhaps is negative, all the various choices that go into possibly protecting oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that there was a time where we as gay, gay men and women sort of bonded together and insisted on educating the youth and insisted on driving home a message that said, if you take this risk, you will die. And, um, and as soon as it stopped being that clear, as soon as it became murky, the drive to educate fell away. The funding fell away. The 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 political influence in um, in the the school system and the education system all started to fall away. Um, and it's really interesting because because now we're at a place where that's much more complicated, and so that infrastructure is much more needed 
Right. There's yeah. there's so many more aspects to it. And you yeah. write about prep in your book. I do. And that probably wasn't around when you started thinking no. about the book. How did how did sort of the the use of that drug and 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 the emergence of it? How did it change your narrative or affect the well, book? When I say I was waiting for the world to give me a resolution to the book, I, that's what I'm talking about. Um, the truth is that um, once this uh, treatment started to emerge and it, it was proving to be um, effective, I really did go back and sort of restructure a lot of the story um, to get it to this end, this end where um, David could align himself with sort of a political voice and a choice um, and and really come out of it all um, not necessarily clean, but at least uh, having learned a lesson and and being given up a, a place to go. Right. Um, right. It was all the versions of the book up until that point were terribly unsatisfying because the character remained sort of stuck in this conundrum. There was no solution to I want what I want, um, which is much more complicated than just sex without a condom. Right. It is. It is about connection. It is about warmth. It is about um, all the sort of human things that we often don't get as gay kids, um, or we remove ourselves from the the way they're offered when we're gay kids. Well, and also, but, but also that that same act with straight people. Mm-hmm. If you you know you tell straight people you have to use that, they, they're like, oh please, yeah. Nobody begrudges a straight guy for saying it feels better without a condom, right? Nobody nobody looks at them twice or whatever, right? Not that, you know, these are murky well, issues, I but mean, it is different it, for gay men than straight men. Yeah, I mean, the truth is that, you know, if if, um, if all things were equal, the population rate would have, uh, the birth rate would have dropped drastically after right. after AIDS emerged. But they're not equal. And, and as a result, you know, we carry a whole lot of different baggage. And when you come to a world where you are labeled as different just because of what you like. And then you have to actually perform the act of what you like differently because of what you are. Right. It, it, um, it really does create a whole series of, um, psychological barriers to intimacy that, um, that when you really dig into it, you start to understand why, why men so quickly turned that corner and started really seeking a level of comfort. Yeah. Well, I, I, it sounds very heavy duty, but it's very, um, there's a lot of humor in it. It's a quick read. It's wonderful. People should check it out. Um, and also it's very of its time, you know, in a way that like, this is what people should be thinking and talking about now. One of my favorite lines in it, you're, you're very self-effacing with your main character is that, you know, that he's somebody who's had a lot of, uh, sexual currency. He's worked it and all of that. And he meets this sort of sweet guy when he's back home in his hometown and they have a little you know, interaction or whatever. And he notices that this guy's kind of crafty and does a lot of stuff. And he has this realization. And I wrote this down. It's amazing what you can accomplish when you're not trying to get laid all the time. Right. So this, this... And I thought that was very insightful. And it also kind of parallels that idea of when a lot of people that had AIDS thought they were going to be dead. Right. And they weren't. Right. And now what? Oh, shit. I got to... Yeah. I have to have hobbies now. I yeah. have to have, well, I have a, a plan. 401k. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, that's the big thing for me, right? Like, you know, I, at 18, I was told I would be lucky to live for two years. Right. And for the next decade of my life, those two years were just rounded up. Yeah. Um, you didn't think you'd get I to was, see the new Star right. Wars. That I, I didn't think about. 30. Yeah. I didn't, you know, thir- much less 46. And, and right. now to be at 46 and thinking, Okay, maybe I need to think about what happens at seventy. Yeah, like Ugh. like those are those God. are that's a really really hard thing to wrap your brain around. But getting back to what you sort of mentioned, you know, this that line comes when David walks into a house that uh, his sort of uh, romantic interest of the moment has, is refurbishing. Right, and um, he he can really sort of see the love and the craftsmanship that's gone into it, and. And I think there is this really great power in these moments where we where we can see the what we're not um, reflecting us back at ourselves. Yeah, um, they're they're incredibly powerful moments, and um, 
and I, 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 you know, I, I, that's one of them in this book. I, I, I'm, I'm proud of that moment, um, and and a lot of others where uh, the character really does have to, through interacting with the people around him, um, see what he is in the reflection of what he is not. Right, and that moves him forward in all kinds of ways. That's cool. Now, you've also worked on another book. I think you edited it. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that. I have not read it, but tell me about it. It's called Leaving the Rest, uh, a gay men on alcoholism, addiction, and sobriety. Um, and it's 10 essays. We strove to sort of do a bell curve of uh, the experience of sobriety, those who had really great experiences with 12-step programs and those who had not-so-great experiences and those who had sort of come to other... Um, Realities. And what's the, the title? Leave the rest. Leaving the rest. Does that mean taking what works for you? And, and it's, it yeah. comes from that. Yeah. Okay. It comes from the program's uh, sort of uh, the twelve step program has a saying that says, "Take what you need and leave the rest." Right. And the idea of this was sort of empowering people to look at the program with an independent lens instead of sort of a group lens. Okay. Um, did you write an essay for it? I did. What's your yeah. essay about? Uh, <laughs> it's called Things I Know Better Now. Linda Lavin <laughs> meets Shirley um, MacLaine at the beauty shop. Um, and it is actually where we pull the title from. Um, I, I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, I, I, I got sober in the rooms when I was very, very young. and um, I love when they say in the rooms. Yeah. In the rooms. Uh, and... And I did that in large part. In New York? Uh, no, actually before then. Wow, all right. Um, and um, it's sort of the period in between SMU and New York City um, when I'd come home to deal with being um, HIV positive and thinking that I was going to die. I sort of really um, wanted to be as healthy as possible. And, and I knew that I was, I was partying and drinking too much. And I came from a, a family that had always said, you're, you're predisposed to this behavior. Um, if you ever get into trouble, run to AA, don't walk. <laughs> And so I sort of did. And, and when I came in the door, I sort of uh, took the medicine with, um, with gusto. And um, what I came to understand over time as I got to be out in the world and living in the world was that not all of what I was, was uh, sort of ascribing to in the tenets of the 12 steps really worked in the life that I was living. And... As I started to pick those things apart, um, what I found was that I needed I needed something much more personal than that sort of group uh, reality to sustain me. Um, I'd been relying on something that was no longer sustaining me. Right. Um, mm. Now, that's just my experience, as they say um, in the program quite often. Um, and... And in the book, I've tried to be fair about um, allowing other realities to exist with the same um, uh, importance, right? right. Um, I don't. I never want to take away from someone's uh, what works for someone, right? I, we all have our own path. We all have our own individual needs, and and however we find a way to meet those is is great, right? Um, but uh, but I think often especially for gay people um, who find their way in, into needing help uh, to deal with um, use and addiction, um, there is really only one path. And that path can often be laden with a lot of peer pressure to conform to a particular reality. Right. And so this, this book was about trying to open up the avenues beyond that. Did, what were people's reactions like? Um, they've been really mixed. Uh, there's been, <clears throat> it's really interesting. Uh, again, going back to reader reviews, um, some people have pulled things out of, of essays out of context, right. um, posted them as proof that, um, those of us who didn't like or work in the program don't know what we're talking about. Um, and and then again, some other people who really like the complexity and the approach of the complexity. Um, it's people sharing their experience. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, it's, if uh, something works for some person, doesn't mean it's all yeah. going to work for somebody else. But if you talk about it, maybe people can relate and, and can connect to it. 
Absolutely. Now, you, um, when you were in New York, you, you dabbled in, uh, not dabbled, but you, you got that job at the theater and stuff like that. What was your most exciting time in the theater world? <laughs> I remember you, you ran a theater for a while. I, I, I did. I You've done a, a lot of stuff in that world. I did. I, um, well, I, I started as an intern for the Young Playwrights Festival, and I got to, um, there were a lot of really exciting moments. Um, I think probably the most incredible moments were that I got to be at both of the opening nights of Rent, uh, partially because of my wow. relationship. Partially because of my relationship with Anthony, but also because I had Anthony worked. Anthony Rapp, um, yeah. Yeah, I had worked at New York Theater Workshop for a number of years, um, which was the organization that produced it. So I got to be at opening night off Broadway. I, I brought Cameron and, and we went to see Anthony um, uh, in the opening night. On Broadway or on Off Broadway. Broadway. But then uh, didn't then Jonathan Larson die before the he opening had, he on Broadway? Died before the opening, yeah. Oh, that must have been so. Um, that must have been so intense. It was. It was really intense. I remember um, what was really, really crazy was um, I had flown to Florida, um, and there was you know this early version of the like um, Spirit Airlines or, or I think it was called Value Jet, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, I had landed in Florida for like a, a long weekend vacation in Fort Lauderdale and I had landed as the first of what would be two of those planes had sort of fallen apart in midair, uh, on takeoff. Oh my goodness. And, um, and then I came from that into my hotel and I got a phone call from Julie Halston who, um, who told me that Jonathan had died, uh, the night before. Oh my God. And, um, uh, you know, I knew I knew Jonathan sort of uh, as a friend uh, through friends. We weren't close, but I, I had sort of seen him develop this over a number of years, and and it was it was a really hard time, and it um, it was certainly much harder for those much closer to the show. Um, but having sort of seen, for me, this was the first time that I had seen something go from early development to phenomenon to fruition. And yeah. then, and then becoming phenomenon at on the tail end of fruition, and um, and that was really powerful. Um, and then it it was really really um, intense to sort of see how that phenomenon became a legacy, um, became a legacy of Jonathan Larson, the foundation, um, the the support of new composers, all the things that sort of came out of that. Um, I, I, I've been next to it. I've observed it um, from a very close vantage point. I wonder how they're going to, when somebody decides to revive Rent, it feels like, well, it's clearly not the time now. Maybe at some point it will feel like the time, but it well, feels there, like... There was already a New York revival in the Off-Broadway Theater. But, but it doesn't feel right yeah. yet. Something, well, or it doesn't feel I, like there's a way to do it that feels I just spoke to fresh. a friend of mine, uh, Alan, who was in his kid's uh, school. Um, they were doing a production of rent. How old in, are the kids? It, they were, they were uh, secondary school, um, but it, it was the like school system school. that his yeah, uh, it was the school system that his kids were in, and he wound up being asked to sort of talk about what it was to be alive in New York at that time and to know people in this world, and and I'm really curious as to how they really presented that in that environment because when you really boil rent down to the bare bones, it's drug addicts and people having sex and. Um, yeah, and I wonder, you know, how that got couched in an educational setting. It was just, you know, two hours of "Would you light my candle?" <laughs> Lots of candle things. Well, that's a sex thing. All right, is it? That's a wow. <laughs> Lighting my candle. All right, yeah. um, you picked a bunch of questions from here, so we're just going to rattle through as many as we can from the observation deck. What's your best random celebrity sighting? Go. Um, I was in uh, a production assistant on the Tony Awards and. I was standing next to Glenn Close, and Farrah Fawcett walked into the room, oh my God. and I grabbed Glenn Close's arm and said, "Oh my God, that's Farrah!" <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure Glenn was like, "And what am I, chopped liver?" Yeah. yeah, but that must be the story of her fucking life. Uh, okay, who's your most surprising fan? Um. Oh. Um. Wow. Uh, oh, my sister. That's my good. sister. I, you why, know, my sister has a, a very um, 
has a very, very conservative uh, belief system, but she embraces my work wholeheartedly and supports it so incredibly. That's and, awesome. Yeah. I met really your cool. sister back in the day. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, if there was a doll of you that talked, a Leslie doll, what would it say when you pulled the string? Get me out of this box. Yeah? Is that the way you feel in your life? Is that the, is that the story of your life? Yeah. That says a lot. You don't want to be in that box. Do you, do you feel like that? You've always bucked yeah. up against convention and yeah. really? Always. From school? I, 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 most, uh, most of my life, I have felt like I'm compressing myself to... to Go along with go everyone along. else's idea. Interesting. And then carving out your own place, carving out your mm-hmm. own thing, is it can be a challenge, or it's not well. Well, it, it's, it's, it's become well sort of a, a juggling and balancing act, right? right? Like the this book is where I carve out the place to really truly be the most honest right. uh, expression of of what I feel and how I am and um, and what I see in the world. Um, but that doesn't always necessarily have a place when you're working in disaster services to pay the bills and your responsibility is to, um, you know, the, the people who are, who've lost their homes and suddenly all the issues of your own life have to go way on the back burner. Right. You worked for the Red Cross for a long time and you were there uh, right after 9-11 or before you were there. I was there for 9-11. So you were working um, for the Red Cross at 9-11. Yeah. Holy smokes. I was there from 9-11 to Katrina, and Katrina kind of dead me in. Katrina kicked your ass, <laughs> yeah. and you were out? Yeah. Now, would you go, did you go down to Louisiana and no. Mississippi? And, but no, you were no. you were working in the New York office of the Red Cross. I was working in the New York office of the Red Cross, and what people don't really understand is that um, half of my staff was deployed to um, to the Gulf. But we had an influx of refugees that needed housing through us um, that was the second largest in the nation. So there was Houston, then there was New York. There's always been this tie between New Orleans and Harlem. And so many people came to New York to try to start a life again. And And you had to help them. And so my sort of half of a team in New York had to not only manage uh, that influx of people, but the day-to-day disasters that were going on as well. How does working in that world change you over time? That's a, that's a really hard question, right? Um, the, the truth is that, that in any place where you see that kind of destruction, like in 9-11 or um, some other things that happened... Um, there, there is an element of P- PTSD that follows you. I'm sure. And um, and there's a PTSD and, element in the book that you. There's yeah, a, that's a, that's yeah. an undercurrent in there. Yeah. And so, at a certain point, you have to really remove yourself from it to to allow that to catch up and to be processed. Right. When you're in it, you're sort of always putting it off till tomorrow. You, you're on and, to the next disaster. Yeah. No. When you when you now when you see something on the news that's like that kind of thing, do I shut you down. start to huh? I shut down. You shut it's down. Real. Yeah, I do. I, You're I, just like I can't deal with this right now. Generally, what I do is I watch enough to get the, okay. the basic this, facts. This happened. This happened here. Yeah, and then and then I have to turn off the coverage. I can't go through that like days and days of footage and yeah, shooting. No. Um, I, I'm with yeah. you. I remember working at Fashion Police and there was a shooting, a school shooting. And some people were talking about it, and I'm like, you know what? I'm taking this one off. Yeah. Like, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I, I can't, you know, like, I can't do all the coverage and all that stuff. And most I'm not of, even, even in that world. It's not, it's just, it's just so sad and you know, horrible. Most of the stuff that, I, that we responded to were natural disasters. And, right. And for some reason, the, the man-made disasters are much easier for me to cope and deal with. Even something like 9-11? Um... um well, that's probably 9/11 was different. It's 9/11 different, yeah. is, you know, I always talk about how 9/11 changed New York for me because when I got to the city, the the towers were were illuminated most of the evening and and visible all through the day. And no matter where I went in Manhattan, I could come up out of the subway and I could I could find the towers and I could get oriented. Right. And. In a lot of ways, it became like my north star, like my touchstone. Like this is this is how I know where I am, and this is how I ground myself. 
and and when they went away, something happened to New York. Like the the middle of the island, the Times Square, and everything started to grow, and and everything sort of became more level um, in height and um, and in in um, sort of brightness at night. Um, and what I always say is that, you know, being in New York now, my North Star has moved. I have to orient through different things. Yeah, but I can imagine. But it's always the first instinct to look for the towers, and yeah. they're not there. I just saw The Walk recently, the movie about the guy that walked between the two. And it's not the greatest movie, but the, the final act is, the 3D is so unbelievable. You feel like you're, you're doing it. But what the movie sort of made the point that before that guy walked, New Yorkers weren't crazy about the Trade Center. They thought it was sort of boxy and ugly. Right. And there was something about that guy and what he did. And, and a lot of people were able to see it. And, and he survived it. And that sort of gave grace to those towers and, and made New Yorkers right. sort of take, take to them, and take them into their hearts. And I thought that was kind of a lovely thing. Yeah, I think so too. And, and, and I think what's really interesting is sort of generationally, you know, the people who lived in the village when the towers first went up, really hated the light that it cast on them uh, throughout the night and how right. um, they could lay in their beds and there was light coming in through their window that right. went, when there had previously been darkness. But but you talk to people who are younger and sort of came up uh, after it was built, and that light winds up, winds up being a comfort. It winds up being, you know, uh, the thing that allows them to explore streets that they wouldn't have explored at mm-hmm. night. And Kind of like know, it was for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. All right. Which have you been more, the dumper or the dumpy? Oh, you picked a juicy one, Leslie Smith. <laughs> uh, the dumper. The dumper. You've more, done more dumping? More, okay. Yeah. What do you just say? 60-40? 70-30? 70-30. Okay. Fair enough. What movie have you seen more than any other? Uh, uh, no Small Affair. Bam! <laughs> That's what I I'm remember it! Yes! I remembered the movie, and I remembered it at a very cool time in the interview. It wasn't planned, I just remembered it. And this is kind of crazy, but I think the answer to the question is My Cousin Vinny. Okay. I I don't know why I've seen that movie so many times, but I have, and it it remains entertaining, and we love Marissa Tomei and Austin Pendleton. That's right. Yeah. And I love that she's like, you know what, I did deserve that Oscar, and I'm going to keep doing good work. Yeah. So, suck it. Okay, where's the strangest place you've ever been recognized? Um, in the ocean in Acapulco. For what? For um, a film or your book or something? For uh, Bear City, actually. Oh, you were in the, the... I was in the original Bear City. That's right. Yeah. Were you the mayor of Bear, Bear City? <laughs> no. So somebody was... recognized... That's an amazing yeah, thing yeah. because everyone in those movies looks the same. Yeah. And that somebody spotted you and said Bear City. Yeah. Okay, uh, Bear City is a gay movie about the bear community. And, and I have a tiny, tiny part at the beginning of the movie where um, I was sort of typecast as a rather predatory gay. <laughs> um, the joke is that uh, someone had asked me if I would go in on it and they wanted to put me in to uh, audition for a character. And I, I knew the director from when I made David Searching and I called him and I said, they want me to come in for this part. And Doug said, oh, no. I know what part you need to play. <laughs> okay. And um, So you were predatory. Guy. And, uh, and I was the sort of... So who recognized you in Acapulco? Uh, some random guy. Some random... Ba- was he bear? Otter? Uh, he, was, he, was, he was young and yeah. into daddies. And there you guys. go. Yeah. Was that the beginning of a wonderful 15 minutes? Nope. All right. We had a lovely conversation. And nice. I was there with someone and I was there to do my swimming and I went back to... There you go. What did you get picked on for when you were a kid? I have a tremor. Um, yeah. My hands uh, are visibly shake uh, 24-7, and they have my whole life. Um, so that and, and gay. Would, would they call you names, or how would, they, how would that express Yeah, itself? actually, my swim team, uh, I don't know if you remember, McDonald's used to have a character called Sir Shakes-A-Lot, who was like a milkshake. Yeah. And um, the swim team that I was on, like most of the, the girls called me that. Girls? Girls yeah. can be meaner than guys. Yeah. Especially in high school. Yep. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I was the only guy who was a swimmer in Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Okay. Uh, the girls' team were state champions, and and, and you did, were the entire male. I swim was team? the entire male swim team. Wow, it's <laughs> like being in ballet class. What was your most glamorous night? Um, I'm gonna go with the Broadway opening of Crazy for You. What made it glamorous and fabulous? It was my first Broadway opening where I was an insider. Right. And um, uh, Elizabeth Williams, who's been sort of my mentor and friend for many, many years, produced it. And uh, she bent over backwards to in- include me in, in all the festivities. When and, you sat, was there a um, tape? was like a tape seat? Like, well, yeah. there's numbered seats, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and at the after party, which was... Um, at the supper club, you know, there was that, that moment of them actually bringing out the print times and reading the review from the stage and the it was whole amazing. Moment. Yeah. Oh, All those God. things that just don't happen yes. anymore. Um, nice. And it was, it was really cool. What project have you worked on that has been the most underrated? All of them? All of them. <laughs> I thought there uh, might've been a no, piece I, of Farrah macaroni art I, that I, you actually, I think, I shot think, on in our class. I think it's Sally. Yeah, I think I think it's this book. Yeah, um, truthfully, uh, it's David terrific. Searching, David Searching is fun, but it's it's got its issues, and it sort of landed where it should have landed. Um, uh, it's in the archive, the uh, Legacy Project Film Archive. That's at exciting. Outfest now, which is a, a huge honor and really great. It will live on. Um, but yeah, what's but your favorite? A, yeah, uh, what's your favorite souvenir from John? Um. <sighs> I have a poster of the first off-Broadway play that I directed. Nice. And um, What's the name of it? It's called Temporary Help. Okay. And um, it was Chad Allen and Robert Cuccioli and Margaret Collin and, and Bill Friel were, were the four cast members. Nice. And uh, it, was, it was a really great experience. What year experience. would it have been? It was 2002. Nice. All right. Have you ever been starstruck? Farah. Yeah. We answered that question. Yeah. What does your family think of what you do and, what you, and your success and so forth? My sister's really great and really proud. Um, my dad is, is very proud of, uh, like, the disaster work and, and all of that stuff. Um, but he's very, very torn, and he, he really doesn't like that I'm publicly gay. He doesn't like... Um, that I wrote a book with the word transsexual in the title. Right. It's, it's scandalous to him. Um, and, Pre-Caitlin. Uh, Pre-Caitlin. Right. Um, and, uh, and so it's really, really hard, right? It depends on, on the family member and it depends on what aspect of my life we're talking about. Right. Um, All right. They have yeah. complicated feelings. Yeah. What's your biggest frustration? You picked another thorny one. Um, my biggest frustration is, I think, trying to find the right size box for my life. Right? Yeah. Okay. It really is. It's, um, you know, I always feel like I'm, I'm shutting down one part to engage another part and... It doesn't um, feel integrated. And it doesn't feel integrated. It feels very, um, separate. That's interesting. Yeah. Has that always, has that always been something you struggled with? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's normal, I think. Um, Yeah. And then I'm, I've also got that Gemini thing going on. So, Which is what? Uh, the the dual, the twins, the two lives side by side. And the, the you know, they always say that Gemini's uh, present as completely different people from, um, depending on the day that you get them. Hmm. And, um, and there's this really dark, brooding, um, awful, uh, you know, uh, part of me that, um, that bad boy brooder that you know is there and then there's this really constructive fun and 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 loving life guy that's also there you're like it's like your sasha fierce <laughs> the bad boys like your your beyonce's yeah, yeah sasha exa- fierce. exactly yeah yeah and it's always been the case yeah always he can he lays low for a while and then he just comes out with a vengeance oh wow there's that yeah, yeah. Um, talking about the, the stuff you did with the Red Cross, were there, were, were you in such a capacity that you could see somebody when they're at their really, they're lost and then sort of see them again and see the difference that 
that what you guys were doing or was it just kind of like you saw them at one point in the process? Yeah. I, I very rarely had client interaction. Most of my work was high level planning. Right. Um, and so I was creating the infrastructure that allowed the people on the field to do the work, to do their job. Um, but as such, I was one of their supervisors. So when there were issues, what would happen is I would get the most difficult cases mm. sort of kicked up to me. So, right. um, and oftentimes being difficult, uh, does not necessarily have to do with the way they were affected, but the way that they were choosing to, um, respond to being sometimes effective. You, you, sometimes you get squeaky wheels. Uh, right. yeah, exactly. And like any and, other thing, yeah. any other service. Exactly. And, um, um so most of what I saw in terms of, of people were, were those squeaky wheels. And, yeah. um, um, but at the same time, what I got to do was really be in charge of the numbers and the reporting and really, really see what kind of difference was being made. And I got to sit in on, on all the policy meetings and write a lot of the policy. Um, one of the things that, uh, I'm really proud of is that th- there are things that I drafted that are in the congressional record, uh, based on all the sort of hearings that happened with the Grassley report and, and Senator Mitchell's, uh, task force. Uh, is this having to do with Katrina? 9-11. 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, and that was a really big deal at, you know, 31 um, or whatever to be working with George Mitchell and, and drafting things that wound up in the congressional record or, or turning in a document at three in the morning and then hearing it being read on CNN as I was coming in. Wow. That was, it was really intense and really It was cool. important. Yeah, it was. Um, and, it, you know, in, in many, many ways, I feel really blessed to have been a part of it with this incredible team of people some of the most talented people I've ever met in my life and not just talented, but dedicated, um, working twice as hard as, as, uh, people who, who work in the private sector for, for, you know, a quarter of the money. And, um, and it was really moving and really inspiring. Um, but I lost the thread of your question there somewhere because... No, but if uh, you saw, like, if you got to see tangible, like, oh, yeah, oh yeah. they didn't have so, a house and now they have a house. And so I got in, to, in terms of yeah. that, I, I didn't really have a lot of client contact in that way. And um, and the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, final question. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, there's two. How can people find you? Do you? I know you do a blog and stuff like that. Uh, LeslieLSmith.com. Okay. Um and what do you hope, final question, what do you hope people get from Sally Field can play the transsexual or I was cursed by Polly Holiday? Uh, hopefully it's going to really ignite a conversation about the new realities of, of protection and, and um, a, a, a real conversation about the way that we have sex and why we have sex the way we have sex. You know, the, the book started with the question, why do gay men bear back? Um, and... And the truth is, it it still is kind of central to the entire journey. And um, do, do you have any do you have any answers to that for your to the why? Have you have you landed on any? I know because you you sort of say I, that this is an ongoing. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I propose a bunch of different um, ideas in the book, and but I think for me ultimately um, the personal answer is that. I I came of age at a certain time when the parameters of my sexuality were assigned to me. And in essence, there had to be a period where I took control of it instead of having it imposed on me. That makes sense. Right. And, um, and for me that, that expression is really a lot of that. Right. Um, but, um, but I think everyone has different reasons. Right. Um, and, um, and like I said, there's a number of, of, uh, theories postulated in the book and, and things I explore on the blog as well. Um, All right. Well, check out the book, check out the blog. Thank you for doing the podcast and, um, that's it. All right. Great. Thanks. Bye. Thank- Bye everyone. Thanks again to Leslie L. Smith. Uh, I hope you check out his book. It's excellent. Um, so this happened. I went to see Duran Duran. It was a birthday present from my friend John, and we went to the Hollywood Bowl, and we saw Duran Duran, and um, Chic with Nile Rodgers opened for them, 
And boy, they have a lot of good songs and a lot of hits. People were dancing in the seats. It was a good time. And then Duran Duran came out. And Simon Lebon looks better than John Taylor. He really does. He's aged better. John Taylor looks kind of like Keith Richards. You know, that lean thing that kind of, after a certain point, you know, you want to have a little baby fat. Simon Lebon looked really good. He was fit. And I did see an interview where he worked hard to kind of get in shape. And he said he didn't want to be the fat one in Duran Duran. But anyway, enough about how they looked. They sounded great. They sang my favorite, Ordinary World. Um, it was awesome. They got so into it, though, that they, they cut out one of their encores. And I like to think it was Save a Prayer, which was one of my favorite songs. So I didn't get to hear that. But um, who would have thought I would see Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet in 2015? That's either an amazing thing or it just tells you that I live in the past. And I was about to counter that notion with the idea that I just bought the new Janet Jackson album and love it. But... That's not exactly, um, you know, ragingly current. <laughs> but it's good if you're a Janet fan like I am. All right, that's all I have for this week. Thank you for your patience in my, you know, unintended hiatus. Um, we'll be back with lots of fun stuff coming up on Dennis Anyone. And um, I hope you, you uh, listen and enjoy and share and like me on Facebook and all of that jazz. All right, have a great time and we'll catch you next time. Bye!